All right, so yes, my name is Kiana. I am the family pastor here at Elm City Vineyard Church. Uh, most Sundays, you'll catch me in the back hanging out with the roots and like dancing and clapping. Uh, we sometimes end up in the church basement eating chips and talking about life with Jesus. Other times, you can catch me downstairs with the little kids, like on my hands and knees singing and playing games. It's a great, great time. It's a great opportunity to be with the children of God. Um, we love kids here at ECV. And the reason why I get up here every week and encourage you all to volunteer is not just because we need people to help out. It's actually because it's good. It's good stuff. God is doing something really special and important downstairs. And I'm just blown away and honored to be able to work with these kiddos. Um, and so even just this idea that we are having a baptism in a couple of weeks, that is so cool to see that we're not just making bracelets and crafts, but we're actually doing something, <laughs> something for God's glory and his kingdom. And yes, sometimes that is through bracelets, and other times it is very much through Bible study or different things. And so please join us. Join us in loving the children in our community well. Come talk to me at some point, whenever. I would love to have you on the team. It's a great time. But um, today, I get to share the message with you all, which I occasionally get to do. And so I had my icebreaker today, and I asked you all, what is your least favorite chore? And I want to hear from you, what is your least favorite chore? Don't be shy. Go on. Somebody tell me. Dishes. Yes. I, mm, that, yeah. After you cook and you do all that stuff, I don't want to see a dish. No, thank you. Cascade, please. All right, next. The bathroom. Yes, that's like the nastiest job ever, right? <laughs> like, so good. Especially when you share a bathroom. I agree. Who else? Ironing. Do people still iron? <laughs> My grandmother is like, ah! <laughs> I have not trained her well. <laughs> yep, ironing, pretty tedious, tedious task. Yep. Rob, what did you say? What? Dog poop, yes. I mean, how many of us have doggies? Yeah, the dog poop is gross, but I would like to wager, as a cat owner, that cat poop is worse because it's in a box in your house, okay? <laughs> At least with dog poop, you're outside, you can, you know, like, clean it up and stuff. Cat poop, it's just in your house. It's gross. All right, one more chore, one or two more. What else do we not like to do? Oh, wow, y'all like doing your chores then. Very nice. Well, I said to Sean, laundry. I hate laundry, and the reason why is because it's not just, oh, you do your laundry. It's a multi-step process. You have to wash, then if you forget to wash, you have to wash again, <laughs> right? Then you have to dry, then when you're done drying, you have to do what? You have to fold, right? I mean, some people don't fold, I get that. I re much respect to you, but I fold my clothes. Um, and then you have to put it away, or you can just let it sit on the chair, you know? A lot of, how many of us do that? Come on, be honest, come on. Come on, yeah, yeah, right? Sometimes I just leave it on the chair. Yeah, well, that just takes a lot of time. I hate it. I don't like it. But I think we can all agree we have to do these chores in order to be fully functioning human beings in society. If we do not clean up our dog poop, we are trash. If we do not, right? Like, if you, it's just true. If you, it's just true, all right? Um, if you do not wash your dishes, I mean, I guess you can buy paper products, but you're just killing the planet, which we don't want to do, right? So, right, all of these different things, right? Some of you are like, what is wrong with her, right? That, I'm just trying to get the point across that we have to do chores. And the other day, I was with a young ECVer, and they had to do their chores. 
Mom said, all right, time to take out the trash. So this kiddo gets up, and they get the bag of trash. And today, that day, it just was a little different than normal. You see, there was a really big problem that I'm going to put on the, the screen. Cicada killers. How many of you have heard of or seen cicada killers before? Yeah. I didn't know about them until I moved to Connecticut. And I was like, what is this nightmare? What is this beast? All right, it has wings. It, it's not dangerous. I did some research on them. And it's only the females that will sting and only when bothered. Okay, so if you're just minding your business around these bugs, you're fine. There's no danger. But for this kiddo, just even the idea of a bug with wings being in their face meant danger to them. And so I'm in their house. I'm minding my business. You know, I'm chatting with mom. I'm like, yes, girl, da-da-da, we're drinking our tea. And the kid is standing at the door with the garbage, like, tight in their hands, and they're staring with terror in their face. And I'm like, man, I got to be a Christian. So I'm like, all right, dude, would you like some help? And the kid's like, yes, please. And so I was like, all right, we can walk together, right? Because it's still their chore. I'm not going to do their chore for them. I already have my own chores, right? So I tell the kid, all right, come on, let's go outside. I'll walk with you. So we walk outside. We go. We take out the trash. The, the cicada killers, they're, they're killing it, right? They're just all over the place. They're flying. It's in my face. We're just calm and collected. In my mind, I'm screaming, right? I'm like, ah, right? But I can't, I can't show a kid that, right? I got to act tough. So I'm like, all right, yeah, all right, cool. We take the trash out. We go back inside. And I ask the kiddo, I'm like, was that scary? And they go, no, not really. And I was like, wow, you're tough. Uh, but what I said to the kid was, yeah, sometimes it's much easier to go through really scary things when you have someone with you. Mm, thank you, Sinclair. Yep, it's true. It's true. And so while I was preparing this talk, I just kept thinking about that. Like being with someone actually is really helpful to go through really hard times and really great times. Yeah, that's good stuff right there. So often the fear of danger can hold all of us back. And in some instances that probably is okay. Let's say you have some plans and you go out, you're in the car, you're on the highway, and oh my gosh, did I leave the iron on? And then you have to turn around and go back home and make sure, and oh, I didn't, okay, cool. And then you're late to your thing. I think that's okay. I actually think that's, that's good, right? Let's sometimes once in a while be like, wait, did we leave the iron on? Let's make sure we don't burn down the house. Those things are okay, but for so many of us, the fear of danger and the fear in danger has initiated the flight or freeze response as opposed to the fight. And so when we read scripture or hear pastors talking from the front saying, do not be afraid, we ask and maybe even challenge that command. Because how could I not be afraid when I've lost my job and I have a family to feed? Or how can I not be afraid when the test results came back and it's most definitely cancer? Or how can I not be afraid when I've made a really big and bad mistake and my reputation is at risk? As a church, we've been in a series called Do Not Be Afraid. And we've been studying people and places in the Bible who have very much had reason to be afraid. 
And yet in the midst of that, God called them to not be afraid. And God also reminded them that he was with them. Last week, we heard from Pastor Tina about not being afraid in battle. And today, we are going to be exploring how God is providing safety in danger. So let us pray. Father, I thank you that you are with us. You are with us right now. You are here in this room. You are present. I pray for each and every one of us, for those of us right now that feel the closeness of danger and are experiencing fear, would you wash over them right now? Would you give us rest? In your name we pray. Amen. So today's text will be taken from the book of 1 Kings. Now, I'm just prefacing this right now. We're about to go into Bible. This is a lot of Bible, and I'm really excited about it because 1 Kings slaps y'all. If you haven't read 1 Kings in a while, get back in that word because some crazy stuff happens back there. Uh, but today, we're going to be studying the prophet Elijah. Okay, so Elijah was a prophet of the Lord, and we meet him in chapter 17. And he prophesies to Ahab, who is the king, that there will be a massive drought. Now, a little backstory on King Ahab that will be important for the storytelling today. Ahab was married to a girl named Jezebel. She was the queen. Together, they worshipped the popular Canaanite god, Baal. That dude up there. The idols of Baal were often in the form of a bull, which you see up there, and it represents lust, power, and fertility. Bales were believed to supply rain for crops, which is quite ironic because there was a drought. So Elijah tells King Ahab that there will be a drought, and immediately after, God tells Elijah to go somewhere else. He's like, leave, go east of the Jordan. And scripture doesn't say exactly why God tells him to do that, but it's pretty obvious that you just told the king that his God is a flop and there's going to be a drought and the king is probably not going to feel too good about that. So God is like, you got to go. So Elijah's like, all right, cool. Bye. He leaves. He's away for three years. Really cool stuff happens in between the chapters. I'm telling you, read First Kings. It's really great stuff. But we're going to fast forward to three years later. So three years pass and the famine is super severe in Samaria. And God tells Elijah to return to the king. When Elijah returns, he gets some pretty bad news. Two things. One, all of the prophets of the Lord have been murdered on Jezebel's command. And two, King Ahab has been looking for Elijah this whole time because he blames Elijah for the drought. With the help of God, Elijah challenges 450 prophets of Baal to a little showdown. We don't have time to read the whole entire story, but it honestly is so beautiful and miraculous, so I strongly recommend that you go back this evening and read 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. It's such a fascinating story. But spoiler alert, because we, we got to do the spoilers, um, God wins. Yay! Right? And it's really, it's really cool. Um, and so we're going to read a little bit. At the end it says, um, in verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trenches. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. 
They seized them, and Elijah had brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. Now after this happened, King Ahab told his wife, Queen Jezebel, and naturally she was upset because Elijah just had all of her prophets slaughtered. Now, a little backstory about Queen Jezebel. I know that in church culture, often we may hear about this woman, Jezebel, and we're like, oh, she's bad, right? So let's, let's talk a little bit about her. And I'm going to use a little bit of 21st century teen slang because I work with the teens. So try and follow along for those of you who are a little bit older, but we got it. We got it together, okay? So Queen Jezebel's reputation was that she was a baddie, all right? And that her, she came from a family that was also full of baddies, okay? Her dad, for instance, he was a high priest in a pagan temple, and he was like, I don't really like this, so he goes ahead and kills the king in that place, and he becomes the king, and he rules for 32 years. And his rule was not great. He actually was a terrible person, um, and his rule was characterized by murderous idolatries and reckless contempt of human rights. So naturally, she follows in her daddy's footsteps, and she's also pretty terrible. When she marries King Ahab, it's a marriage of political alliance, right? It's not like the love marriages that we have today. This was like a political strategy. But she marries Ahab, and she's the one who installed the 850 prophets of Baal. And she was the one who said, we got to get rid of all of these other prophets. So any prophet that contested Baal, she murdered them, or she had them murdered. So yeah, she was pretty upset when she found out that Elijah had come back had shown that our Lord was the Lord that was in charge and had slaughtered all of her prophets. She was mad and she was out for blood. So she sent a messenger to Elijah with a death threat. And Elijah was scared straight. So he fled. There's a bit of emotional whiplash in this story. One second, there's this triumphant, like, God reigns, God rules. And the next second, Elijah's on the run for his life. Happens very quickly. First Kings chapter 19, 4 says, While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Elijah's fear and loneliness had led him to a point of becoming suicidal. The triumph of the moment was overshadowed by the very real and present danger in his life. And yet, even in such circumstances, God provided for him. God's provision can and does look different every time. In this instance, God provided very basic things like food and water and shelter. 
but God also provided a place for rest. And for those of us who have ever gone through any type of depressive episode, you know that rest is so important. It is not necessarily the cure to depression, but it's part of the healing process. So even on the run, Elijah was protected and given a space to rest, to recharge, to feel fully human again, not in that fight or flight mode. Verse 11 picks up and says, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came the fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. Uh, side note, I'm about to mispronounce a bunch of things because I didn't go to div school. Okay, also anoint Jehu, son of Nishimi, uh, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouth have not kissed him. So Elijah went there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So we see here just a recap of what we just read. There is an earthquake, there is a fire, there is a strong wind, but God's voice was in a gentle whisper. And when God speaks to Elijah, God gives him some pretty specific instruction as to what to do. We see here in Elijah's story that God didn't just stop providing shelter and food and rest. He didn't stop there. Even though those are super important things, those were important for Elijah's body to be well, to be able to carry out what God wanted him to do next. But God also provided his voice. It wasn't in the noise. It wasn't in the wind, in the earthquake or the fire. It was in the gentle whisper. And in that whisper, God called Elijah into deeper obedience to trust him and charged him with instructions to call up a new generation of prophets. Even in his fear, Elijah had to listen to that still, gentle voice of the Father. I'll say that again. Even in his fear... Elijah had to listen to that still, gentle voice of the Father. So there are a lot of lessons that we can take from this story, but the three that we'll focus on today is the first one is that God will always provide. There is no question about this. 
God will always provide. We are his children, and he loves us. And even in the face of danger, God will give us exactly what we need. The next point is that often in his provision, there may be something more that he's doing and is calling you into. Your life isn't just about you. It's just not. This whole story of Elijah and and bloodshed and all of this stuff, right, it leads to the calling up of a new prophet of the Lord. That was really important because all of it, if you remember, Jezebel had commanded all of the other old prophets of the Lord to be slaughtered. So Elijah was the only one left. And yet in all of that, God still called him to call up Elisha and the others to become new prophets. And the last point is that God is with you. God remained present with Elijah through it all. Just like what I said to that younger ECVer, it's much bearable to go through the triumphs and the lows with someone. Elijah was not alone, and you are not alone. Last week, Pastor Tina encouraged us to share our stories with one another. And so I wanted to share part of my story um, that constantly reminds me that God is in control and that God is the one who provides and that I'm not alone and that he's always providing. And for time's sake, I cannot go through the whole entire story, but it's, it's a good one. It's filled with a lot of things. So feel free to ask me at any point and I can um, share some coffee for three hours and tell you the whole story, <laughs> every detail. Uh, But I'm going to share a little bit of a story of my family. Uh, So there's my mom, my dad, my sister, and me. We are very close. We tend to say us four no more, which is really awkward because my sister is getting married. So I guess (laughs) guess the rhyme doesn't work anymore because there's a fifth. (laughs) Um, But we're a very close family. We love each other a lot. We're like obnoxiously close to the point where like every morning we FaceTime each other and we're like, hey, what are you doing today? And like, it's, you know, I talk to my dad like five times a day. It's weird and it's great. Uh, but in 2015, our whole entire world changed when my dad, who's just like really cool guy, really loud and in charge, has a lot of friends, is just very charismatic, a wonderful, wonderful dude. Um, he became very sick with a lung condition that eventually led to a lack of oxygen in the rest of his body, and so his heart began to shut down. You need your heart to live, right? This one strong, he used to be strong and healthy and athletic, and he's definitely a non-smoker, and he was only in his 40s at that point. He was suddenly confined to our house, hooked up to an oxygen tank with no answers, and no hope for a better quality of life. All of his doctors were stunned, they couldn't figure it out, and they were like, this is, this is it. And this was devastating for our family. You know, this man was totally healthy in his 40s, and we were just shook. Um, And it was scary, it was pretty scary. Um, Trips to the hospital became quite frequent and medical bills began to pile up. And because of his condition, he had to leave his job, so less money was coming in. And that was really hard for all of us. I particularly have this memory of my dad. uh, When my mom would go to work every day, 
my dad, he would leave the front door of the house open. And I remember once coming home and like opening the door and saying, why is the door open? Why are you, why are you doing this? And he said, well, if the EMTs have to come, I don't want them to knock down the front door because it's original wood. That like has stuck with me. <laughs> That's just so mind-blowing to me that that is the state that he was in. That's scary. That's danger. Being sick, having no answers, and literally preparing for EMTs to come and resuscitate you. There is a much larger testimony of how God provided in that season. Uh, money just ended up in our mailbox, us getting in contact with the leading doctor in the world about his condition. What? Um, and even friends just rallying behind us in so many different ways. But for four years, we clung on to the hope that Jesus would provide. We prayed and asked God to be the breath in his lungs. We prayed and asked God to be the provider to pay the mortgage so that we wouldn't have to sell my childhood home. We asked for healing and we held vigil for a miracle. And some of you in this very room probably recall me in the back of the church just crying every Sunday and being inconsolable, not knowing what to do. That was scary. I was in college at that time and I remember I had to get a part-time job and I was like, ill. And right, like these just the aspects of having a sick parent, the worry, the stress, um, the phone calls. It was a lot. It was scary. By 2019, though, although he wasn't fully healed, he was in a better place with a new course of treatment that made life easier and better. That's because we got in contact with these doctors in the leading field, and they were like, ooh, a science project. Let's figure it out. So even though they didn't really know what was going on, they were down to, like, figure it out. And so we would travel uh, to Pennsylvania. They were in Philadelphia. So we would travel to Philadelphia weekly just to see these doctors and they would troubleshoot. It was so miraculous, honestly, the work that they were doing and the, the type of healing that was happening in real time that they asked for my dad's consent to be in a medical journal because they were like, this is wild, we don't know what's going on, but this is cool, we need to record it. So he became a little bit of a guinea pig. He likes it. He likes to tell people, he's like, I'm in a medical journal. I'm like, it's not your name, you're patient A. But, <laughs> but we, we give him props, we give him props. Um, but just even in that season, right, another example of God providing was my dad's previous employers going back to them and them saying, hey, we really value and we want to put our money where our mouth is, and so we're going to increase the percentage for your disability, so much so that our financial troubles cleared up. And not only cleared up, but there was actually surplus. Like, how does that happen? I don't know. That's the Lord. And so in 2019, around the table one night, we were having a family meeting. We were praying and prophesying. And it was very clear that a word came that we were supposed to buy property. And that felt kind of weird and just left field. Like, why would we buy another house? We have a house. It's fine. Uh, you know, dad's doing okay right now, but I mean, he's not back to his normal self. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. Why would we invest in a property? But God said, no, I want you to do this. And so as a family, we trusted God and we, we went on Zillow and we found a realtor and we found this gorgeous house in the peak of the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania and we fell in love. And for some reason, the house that was there it had been sitting in the lot for two years. There was nothing wrong with the house. 
the house was just there. Like, they just couldn't sell it for some reason. And we believe that God just left that for us, <laughs> right? Um, and so we were like, we want this house. The process responded. I was like, yes, right? Like, God, like, it's just amazing, right? So it was a very quick process. We met with the realtor. We, we like, paid for the house. It was really cool. It was like a cash payment, which is so weird. Like, who does that for a house? Like, it's just, it's God, right? God did some really cool things in that season. And we closed on that house the last week of February in 2020. So February 2020, I was here with you all at ECV. I was a New Haven public school teacher. And I remember two weeks after we had closed the house, I was in my classroom with my students. They were acting up. I was acting up. We were having a great time. Uh, and the, the administrator comes on the loudspeaker and is like, you all will be gone for two weeks. And we're all like, yeah, two weeks gone. We all know that that lasted a lot longer than two weeks, right? right? In the moment, we were like, yeah, this is great. But it was not great. Um, and I remember feeling some fear in that, but kind of excitement, because it felt like a vacation to me. I was like, I don't got to be with these kids every day. Like, this is going to be great. Uh, but very quickly, we learned that that was not actually a fun vacation or a break, right? As the two weeks turned into a much longer time, as we all know, I moved into that Poconos house. It was unfurnished. We had, like, two blow-up beds. Um, but I moved into that house with my dad and our two cats. And my mom, who worked for the post office, and my sister, who worked in the local hospital, stayed in the Jersey house. So although we were a family very much divided between essential and non-essential workers, we were filled with fear, but we were still trusting God. And I will always give thanks to God for the way that he provided in that season, y'all. It is no question that if my father got COVID, he would not be with us here today. There's no doubt about it. His lungs were barely functioning. And as we know, COVID was taking people out who had perfectly healthy lungs. Within a short six months, my aunt, a handful of old church friends, and 30 of my dad's coworkers had died from COVID. Till this day, I flinch when I hear the Apple ringtone, the dun 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 I flinch because for me, I think I've been like Pavloved into thinking that if there's a phone call, someone died. That was scary. That was a really scary time. The overbearing weight of grief mingled with fear was quite insufferable. But yet, in the midst of it all, God provided. The nights that I would cry myself to sleep, God provided comfort and rest. On the days when I was agitated from, although beautiful house, being cooped up in a house with your dad and two cats, there comes a point, right, when you're like, okay, <laughs> enough is enough, <laughs> right? But God provided friendship in that space. He provided a reminder that the house that he so graciously gave us two weeks before shutdown was a fortress of safety in a world that was so unsafe. God provided in so many little and big ways in that season. And to be honest, it was really hard to notice then, as you can imagine. But in those sweet moments when I was still before the Lord and asked, he spoke so clearly to me. He reminded me that this moment in time wasn't just for me, but it was for his glory even when it felt like the world was ending. It felt like my world was ending. But God was still there. He was still with me. Our family church became a Zoom church, as did so many others. 
and I essentially became the executive pastor of the church, unpaid position, uh, from my old MacBook and terrible Wi-Fi in the middle of the woods. But lo and behold, this little community that we had, we, we saw it grow in the pandemic. And it was amazing. And we saw people coming back to God, rededicating their lives to Jesus and learning how to love him again with community. And we saw a community form that was so beautiful to experience in a world that had felt so isolated. I had heard so many other people's stories of feeling so lonely during the pandemic, and that was not my story. My story was actually we were facilitating a community of people together. We were doing things together. We were mourning together. We were rejoicing with each other. And it was so beautiful. I got to minister to so many people from my computer and my cell phone. And I got to be a part of facilitating something that was much bigger than me. If I had stayed in my fear, which was very true fear, I'm not sure such beauty would have been found in such a wilderness. And for this story, there are hundreds and thousands more of the Lord's faithfulness in the life of my family. Like I said, I cannot tell you the whole story today. It's a crazy wild ride. I will like just say that my dad is healthy and well today. Amen. Right? Like, amen. He's great. You know, he's still got a little bit of attitude, but he's great. Um, <laughs> but God provided. We serve a God who is generous. Can't you see the generosity in this story of someone who's here with you today? We serve a God who is strong and who will very much speak to us, even in the midst of grief, even in the midst of danger. Hmm. It was no coincidence, y'all, that we bought that house and closed two weeks before shutdown. We listened to God's voice months earlier, and we trusted that he was up to something, even when it didn't make sense. Why would we buy another house? It didn't make sense to us, but God knew exactly what he was doing. My experience in the pandemic was traumatic, obviously, but transformative as well. It was a catalyst for a career change, a new relationship with grief, and so much more. And the experience led me to become so much more grateful for the gift of life. I wake up every morning now and I'm breathing and that's like a miracle to me because it is a miracle. And perhaps before the pandemic, I took that for granted. Hmm. This experience also reinforced my belief that clinging to safety is not the way to go. It's easy to do that. It's easy to cling to the things that feel safe to us. But perhaps pursuing God and clinging to him is actually the only safe place we can go. Safety is kind of an illusion, y'all. The hiding place? Um, how many of you have heard of the hiding place? Corey Tin Boom. All right. Yep, yep. Good, good, good amount of you. So uh, I cannot summarize all of this story, but the hiding place is this very famous book. It's unforgettable. It's a retelling of a beloved Holocaust survivor, Corey Tin Boom, and her family's lives in the face of unspeakable danger in Harlem, Holland during the Nazi occupation. They were Christian believers, um, and they helped hide Jewish folk during that time. It's a beautiful, wonderful, heartbreaking story. Um, it's very powerful. I would suggest it. They have kid versions of it. It's, it's a wonderful story. Uh, but there is a particular story that I want to read. The other day, a friend um, here at ECV mentioned a part in the story, and I said, ooh, that's good. 
All right, so the two characters we're reading, it's Corey is narrating and Betsy is her sister. One night, I tossed for an hour while dogfights raged overhead, streaking my patch of sky with fire. At last, I heard Betsy stirring in the kitchen and ran down to join her. So if you're following, there's like the planes in the sky, they're bombing, all of that stuff. And she hears her sister in the kitchen, so she goes downstairs to hang out with her sister. She was making tea. She bought it into the dining room when we had, where we had covered the windows with heavy black paper and set out the best cups. Somewhere in the night, there was an explosion. The dishes in the cupboard rattled. For an hour, we sipped our tea and talked until the sound of planes died away and the sky was silent. I said my goodnights to Betsy at the door to Tante John's room and gro groped my way up the dark stairs to my own room. The fiery light was gone from the sky. I felt for my bed. There was the pillow. Then in the darkness, my hands closed over something hard. Sharp, too. I felt blood trickle along a finger. It was a jagged piece of metal, 10 inches long. Betsy! I raced down the stairs with a shrapnel shard in my hand. We went back to the dining room and stared at it in the light while Betsy bandaged my hand. On your pillow, she kept saying. Betsy, if I hadn't heard you in the kitchen. But Betsy put a finger to my mouth. Don't say it, Corey. There are no ifs in God's world and no place that are safer than other places. The center of his will is our only safety. Oh, Corey, let us pray that we may always know it. I want to read that quote one more time. There are no ifs in God's world, and no place safer than other places. The center of his will is our only safety. Kind of like my pandemic story. Kind of like for Elijah. There's no place that would actually represent safety for Elijah, not while Jezebel was alive and in charge. For me and my family, COVID could have very much still come and ravaged through my father's lungs through some unknown exposure. And for you, whatever your situation may be, whether that's sickness or being on the brink of poverty or emotional unhealth, whatever it may be, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And for many of us, the default is to turn to fear. But what if we're actually being called to is the center of God's will? What would that look like? I thought about this a lot, and I think that to even know the will of God is to know him. And so to find that place is to seek out God, to seek out his presence, to turn the volume of all the noise, as Josh says, take the noise down and turn God's voice up. Because when we do listen, oftentimes we're able to see where he is providing and how he is calling us into a bigger picture. God provides in danger, and in his provision, he calls us to not be afraid and to trust that he is with us. Just like Elijah, even in danger, he was called to raise up a new line of prophets, even in the danger, right? For me, even in the danger of losing all of my family and most definitely my sanity, I was called to facilitate a new type of church community that saw people come back to Christ. 
And just like for Corrie ten Boom, she was called to spread the gospel during one of the darkest times in our history. I can't speak for Elijah or Corey, but I think I can positively assume that we were all changed because of these testimonies. The danger didn't necessarily go away for us, but God was with us. And God used those moments and dangerous situations to point back to him and to his glory. Each week here at ECV, we want to be able to create a space to respond to what we're hearing up here. We don't just want to hear something and say, that was great, and go home. So today, like as I was preparing for this talk, I thought about what, what do you all need today with your own dangers and your own fears, what you are carrying? What, what could possibly be something that we need? And I always just point back to God calls us into gratitude. And so Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Psalm 56, 3 to 4 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I want you all for a moment to just reflect on these verses. Remind yourself of a time when God provided for you in a moment of danger. Maybe this is the first time you may go back to a memory and be like, God, didn't, God wasn't there. God didn't provide. No, go back there. Go back there and find out where did God provide? How did he provide? And take a moment to thank him. The next thing, the next invitation is, what may be something in your life causing you to fear that you need to give to God? I think about what I said earlier about going to take out the trash with someone, it's much more bearable than doing it alone. Don't do this alone. We'll have prayer ministers on the side and just people scatter around in this space. Talk to someone. You don't have to do that alone. You don't have to face your fears alone. As a matter of fact, God doesn't want you to. And the last invitation is to take a moment to pause and listen to the Spirit. What may God be calling you into, even in the midst of danger? I'd like to invite the worship team up. Folks, we are trying together to live a life of obedience and trust unto God. And that sometimes can be really hard. No one's invalidating your experiences. Life is scary. Life is hard. We all have moments when it just feels like too much. And so when we hear phrases like, do not be afraid, there's a weird reaction there. Well, how can I not be afraid? Have you seen this world we're in? But God is calling us to actually pay attention to that, to pay attention to him and what he's doing, and to know that you are not alone. So for those of you, like, I just get a sense even now that there are some people in this space who feel like you're alone, and you're not. So please go and receive prayer because the Lord, he is with you. Here as a community, we are here together. We can't do this alone. We can't. I'm going to invite Katie.